And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Hey, it's great to have you along with us as we talk with some very special guests on this program, which, of course, is called Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And we are also looking for those new ways of living I keep saying this over and over again because the old ways aren't working. Just look around you and you will see that we have got to come up with some new ways of uh, meeting the challenges that we face from day to day. I don't care if it's uh, a hangnail or a pandemic, okay, natural disaster or otherwise. Speaking of disasters, we have a gentleman who is joining us um, who is referred to as the <laughs> the master of disaster, Dr. Uh, Randall Bell, Ph.D. He is the founder of the Core IQ of Core IQ. We'll find out what that's all about. And Randall, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, by the way, doctor, I have this pain right back here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Ph.D. does not mean you have a medical degree. But, hey, thank you for joining us. Richard, it's a pleasure. And my, as my mom says, I am a doctor, but I'm not the kind that helps people. So you have to find someone else for the pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, they call me Dr. D, but uh, I refer, I'm referred to as the audio physician. Uh, so uh, I, will, I will do what I can to make you sound at the very best that you can. Okay. Now, you are here with us today, uh, not just to discuss... Of course, your latest work, of course, which is called, po I, love the, I love this title, Post-Traumatic Thriving. Go figure. Go figure. Post-Traumatic Thriving it is the art, science, and stories of resilience. Now, uh, I don't know about you, um, but I am sick and tired, even setting aside the post-traumatic part, of just surviving. Okay. And I am here with this program to help people to move from survival to what I thought was a word I made up, thrival. Looked it up. It's already a word. And that's what we're really working on, trying to move into a different space. And even with your work here with this book, Post-Traumatic post uh, Thriving, you're really trying to do the same kind of thing. <clears throat> and I will tell you, and then I'll have you jump in here, when the pandemic was declared, when the United States shut down in March of 2020, uh, I wasn't scared. I wasn't fearful. I was actually elated for two reasons. One is we are actually doing something different this time with a virus. We never have done this with the flu, and we should have. Two weeks, shut down the airlines. It's over. Okay? But no, too, too dangerous on the economy. Post-pandemic, which hopefully we are at that stage here very soon, that's a drop in the bucket, two weeks. Okay? But boy, it would increase our productivity. People wouldn't be getting as sick, you know, and maybe not as many people would be getting sick and so forth. The other part of it was I felt the incredible opportunities that we didn't even know existed yet because we were doing something different. Is that pretty much where your work and this particular book is coming from, that we need to start looking at these kinds of events, regardless of what name you, know, you want to categorize them as, 
as the land of opportunity, if you will, uh, metaphorically speaking? Well, first of all, I got to say, Richard, I never heard the word thrival before. I got to I got I to step it up and do a second edition and get that in there. That's there you go. brilliant. Uh, it's not mine. <laughs> yeah, so don't I, give me credit. <laughs> uh, well, I think you deserve the credit. But uh, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of parallels to what you just said to kind of my work and my research uh, in, in regards to post-traumatic thriving is that, yeah, trauma, you know, it, it bites, it hurts. Uh, but we got to look at it in a new way. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do, both in terms of the science, because there's absolutely amazing science. I mean, behind me are binders full of articles and, and research uh, that have come out of Harvard and um, Yale and every, everywhere else that, that shows that we can actually redo our thinking and actually heal from trauma. And uh, by, by college age, 66 to 85% of everyone's been hit by a trauma and the school system doesn't teach us how to deal with it. Yet we got to deal with it. So that's, I, I love the discussion because it's all about healing and it's all about not just survival, but thrival. Or <laughs> that's, that's, I guess that's my new thing to say now. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's, it's something that <clears throat> um, what I have noticed in those situations that are man-made, setting aside the natural disasters, um, if this planet were to hold an intergalactic seminar, uh, the seminar it would hold would be in crisis management because we seem not to be able to set up for preventative maintenance to avoid the crises that we create. They're, they're a creation of our, our, our make. Our, we're the ones that are doing it to ourselves, especially when it comes to education, economics, even, even philosophically speaking. And I use that interchangeably with religion. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we, if we would just learn how to do preventative maintenance, we wouldn't have those crises. But we, we don't seem to be able to do that. You couldn't be more right. I mean, we've, we work in the field of disaster recovery, and that's taken me all over the world working on cases like the World Trade Center and Hurricane Katrina and the Flight 93 crash site, Bikini Atoll nuclear weapons test sites, OJ, John Bonet. We worked on literally hundreds, probably more like thousands of cases. Um, and I have this conversation with clients all the time, and they're bright people, major corporations. I've worked for three different federal governments around the world, and you know about preventative, you know, measures. Yeah. And the conversation just kind of goes flat. Uh, we're more of a reactive mindset, a more reactive culture, which is which is unfortunate because a lot of these things, not everything, but a lot of these things could be avoided, but we just don't think that way, but it's a, it's a better way to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and of course I, I don't like referring to them as <clears throat> necessarily problems or obstacles. I, I like to use the word challenges because that's really what they are. Uh, I am working on helping people to move from a concept of dualism, for example, <clears throat> because when you look out in the cosmos and you see either stillness or you see major activity, like, I don't know, uh, a supernova exploding, that's just what the universe does. That just, it just is, okay? There's no right or wrong, good or bad. It, that's just what there is. And so if we could take that same tack with the things that happen in our lives saying, this is neither good nor bad. It's like that old Chinese uh, proverb, if you will, or story. You're probably familiar with it about the farmer and his son and the neighbor who comes over every day to see how things are going. And each day it's something different. 
And each day it alternates between uh, the neighbor saying, oh, well, that's good. Oh, well, that's bad. And the farmer says, well, who's to say whether it's good or bad? Because each one manages to build off of the last event from the day before. You know, the horses got out of the stall. And then the son manages to not only retrieve the horse the next day, but also a herd of horses. Uh, the next day, he breaks his leg. The next day, the military comes to conscript people, and he can't go because his leg is broken. And the list goes on, back and forth. I'm wondering if that's uh, um, something that we might be able to take a look at in that respect. Do we need to change our perspective on these challenges that face us from day to day? I, that's a complex, um, yeah, that's a, that's a really great complex question. And I think about this a lot because, you know, I go to these disaster sites and as I say, they're around the world. And that means I'm on a plane, you know, with a lot of silence, a lot of time to think and write and, and contemplate, you know, what I just saw. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, I, I, I like that parable and I like that, um, I like that discussion. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, when I went to, um, I worked on Sandy Hook, you know, and, and that was just one of the most horrific cases to just think about, well, what, what happened and the places I went and, and saw, I've been to Auschwitz, I've been to um, the Pulse nightclub, the owner took me inside, oh, and I, that changed my life mm. in terms of how we treat our LGBT friends and family. And, um, and I, I've heard people say there's no such thing as evil, and, and I don't know that I can completely buy off on that, because I've been to some places where I would label it as evil. I think it's the worst, you know, forms of, of human uh, behavior, but aside from those extremes where we're talking about sociopaths and mm -hmm. and um, horrible crimes, right. I, I think that in everyday life, um, taking a, a more moderate perspective, like you just said, you know, has a lot of a lot of as I say, it's an interesting discussion, and I think it'd be beneficial. And again, I don't want to minimize people's loss of uh, family members, relatives, etc., friends, in incidents such as that or or otherwise. I don't want to minimize that at all. That's a very real thing, loss. Uh, it's a different conversation, but it is still, uh, it's, it's still very, very real. Uh, I used yeah. to think, well, if I didn't get attached to these people, then I wouldn't feel that grief. I mean, I remember as a seven-year-old, and my grandmother on my mother's side passed away. My mother nearly had me escorted out of the church because I was so upset. I loved that woman dearly and uh, I miss her missed her then uh, as a seven-year-old not maybe fully understanding what had happened or maybe fully understanding and just I, I didn't want to wrap my brain around it as a seven-year-old um, I've had other people pass and I would wake up from uh, I remember my my present wife and I uh, were uh, grieving over the loss of a dear friend who was living with us passed away in our home and I remember waking up uh, the day after his passing, and mm. I was madder than a wet hen. I was angry. I couldn't believe the anger that was within me. And I was angry because of his leaving. And there was so much more that I wanted to do with him, you know. Uh, but uh, th those, are, those are traumas that we experience as well, the, the loss of a loved one. doesn't matter how we lose them. It can be from natural causes, for that matter. And we still, that's still a trauma that we're dealing with. Um, yeah. Post-traumatic. 
obviously following the trauma is what we're talking about in terms of thriving. I'm sure that there are some steps that you have laid out for us. What is step one when one has recovered, so to speak, or at least as much as one can uh, from that trauma? Now you're it, you're past it. Uh, you're now able to wrap your head around what happened, you know, and so on and so forth. And now it's it's time to. I, I hate to say it's time to get back to normal. That's this whole pandemic thing. You're talking about, okay, we'll finally be getting back to normal. I says, no, you're not. This, is, this isn't even the new normal. This is just the way it is, okay? <laughs> and that's just yeah. a turn of phrase. But where do, where do you start? Where do you start to look and thrive following a, a trauma? Well, Richard, that's the million dollar question. And, and it's uh, the big question. And the approach I took, which seems to be, you know, getting a great response. And, and I don't take credit for that. I just assembled some, some great information from some brilliant scholars. And also I met, I've met, you know, thousands of people that have been through traumas, and many of them have been kind to share their stories with me, which I interweave in the book. So I, I, I don't want just the science, I don't want it to be a science book, although it is. I want to yeah, bring it alive with, with real stories. But to, to answer your question, it starts to the first chapters on shock, uh, you know, and that explains the brain's physiology of what happens to us when we are traumatized. And that help, gives us kind of a foundation for understanding that what we're going through in terms of what you described with anger, uh, with denial, with bargaining, all those uh, steps, which usually land on depression, those are all normal. They're completely normal. And this is what your brain is actually doing because we actually have three brains. We have the inner reptilian brain, the mid mammal brain, which feels emotions and the outer brain, which is uh, our human logical brain. When trauma hits us, uh, we want to, our, our outer logical brain, our human brain turns off and our inner reptilian brain turns on and we experience shock. And that's where we get uh, chemicals released from the base of our spine that go down to our adrenaline. Re, re, you know, we get into the fight, flight, freeze mode. Mm -hmm. Again, completely normal. So I'm trying to, you know, educate all of us in the book that this is normal. This is what's going on. And because uh, because of the way the brain is wired, our memories are distorted. And some people get stuck in that mode of adrenaline pumping months or years or decades after the trauma. That's the problem with trauma. If we don't process it properly, uh, we're going to be triggered and we're going to get outraged over some simple nothing issue. And it's all relates back to these, these stored memories in the reptilian brain that have not been properly processed. Um, so we go from there to survival to thrival, but we start with the dive stage. And frankly, it's an ugly discussion because we got to go back to our trauma and really discuss the shock, the anger, and this, and really live with it and really process it. That's how we heal. Mm. Well, now you used a phrase that is, it's a nice little phrase there. Uh, however, every person is different. We're, in, we're individuals, we're unique in that regard, including our chemistry, our, our brains, and all of that, in spite of the fact that we, for the most part, we all have the same parts um, as, a, as a species, if you will. Uh, but you talked about uh, a proper processing, if you will. So what does that really mean? How, I, I, because of the fact that we are all different, there must be some 
general set of rules or guidelines or a protocol to help us to do that. I mean, I've, I don't know about you, uh, back in the 80s and when I was in my 20s, I went through a program called LifeSpring, Personal Growth and Development Program. It was an offshoot of EST. It was much different than EST. It was probably as expensive as EST. But it was something that I was uh, asked to go through by a dear friend of mine, my very first general manager in radio. Uh, great experience. I went through the three levels that they offered at that time. And then in the 90s, I went through another series of personal growth programs, which were totally free, called Delta and Omega Vector. Delta Vector and Omega Vector. Uh, founded by uh, the late uh, George Adair, who nothing significant about him other than he was a... He was a printer. He owned a company called Papago Printing there in Phoenix. But he was interested and intrigued by the zero point uh, of uh, and, and, of course, the writings of Teilhard and uh, and uh, Rene uh, Descartes uh, and 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 others as well. Many other writings. So where where do you you know, where's the how, how do you how do you determine how to help somebody? To start that process, that very difficult process, which we encourage people to do through uh, our promotion of uh, the decade of perfect vision, where we encourage people to go within and look for, uh, and I, when I say decade, it's the 2020s, which is the decade of perfect vision. We want people to listen to and follow that still small voice. We want people to go within and find that quiet, peaceful place. Um, We'll talk about where that falls in this in this protocol. But where do you start with someone who says, look, I can't do this anymore. I need, so to speak, I need to get fixed, uh, if, if you will. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not much of a, a proselytizer in terms of telling people, hey, you need to get fixed. No, I, no, no. I, 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 this, is, this would be someone yeah. who comes to you and says, yeah, I, I'm ready. I'm ready. Please. Oh, oh, well, if help you're ready, me. help yeah. me. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I hate to sound cliche or promotional, but I'd say read the book. I spent 10 years researching it and writing it. It wasn't a fly by night. You know, some people with word process, you can pump a, you know, pump, pump a book out in 15 minutes. I didn't take that approach. I went, I hit the books hard. There's great solid research and solid, uh, solid uh, academics behind this, mm -hmm. and it really works in the stories. So I try and bring it all alive. But, um, but what I would say is, number one, you know, in the preface of the book, I say, you know, make sure you're outside of the trauma because this stuff won't work if you're in an abusive relationship or mm. if you're being traumatized mm -hmm. by something. Get to a safe place then we can heal from the trauma. But if you're trying to heal from the trauma, when you're in the trauma, that's a different discussion. So get to a safe place. And I, I, I ask in the book and I ask in person, are you in a safe place? And number one, we're going to, we're going to start with a dive stage and we're going to process through every single emotion uh, on the grief scale. Um, and we're going to, there's a whole chapter on it and we want to we want to go through it. And I also take the approach, it's rinse and repeat. You know, you can get all the way to chapter 15 where you uh, have some sense of gratitude from the lessons of the trauma and your, your uh, uh, so forth. But you, it's rinse and repeat. You can go back to anger. You know, I talk about openly about my story. I had open heart surgery when I was 11. I was born with a congenital heart defect. Mm. And um, it was never properly processed. And my parents just didn't talk about that stuff. And uh, I love my parents, but they didn't. 
So even today, I, you know, sometimes I feel kind of angry about it, but that's normal. So you want to kind of give the whole big picture of trauma recovery and also call out the lies. The lies are, you know, it can't happen to me or there's no hope or forgive and forget. Those are all lies. We don't forgive and forget. We we want to forgive, but we're not going to forget. That's it's ludicrous. Doesn't happen. You know, in, in these extreme cases. Yeah. So, um, so that's the big picture is, is let's start with the shock. Let's start with the brain chemistry. What's going on? Why are you stuck? And it's explained by the medical doctors out of Harvard, very well with brain scans. Let's start with that to make people feel like, Hey, I'm normal. Um, I'm not broken or I, I I'm going through normal stuff, but let's rewire this stuff and look at new paradigms and let's, let's heal. That's the big picture. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Randall Bell, and uh, what is your Ph.D. in? It's essentially in sociology. Um, it had a lot of psychology in there, but it was, is in sociology. And you are the founder of Core IQ. Uh, I took that IQ test, and as I mentioned to you in our uh, conversation before we started this interview, uh, it uh, it has some very interesting questions in there. But it also, and every I think every IQ test does this. It tests your honesty of self. Yeah, yeah. Core IQ is a concept I came up with a long time ago because I was. Um, I used to be a uh, managing director of the, of the world's, frankly, the world's, the world's largest um, consulting firm. And I had hired a whole bunch of people and they were brilliant people. But in terms of time management or negotiation skills, uh, that, that kind of thing, they, they were you know, trained economists and engineers and, and they didn't have a grasp of that. So I went to someone in the office and I said, hey, uh, since we're the world's largest consulting firm, where do we go to learn time management? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. So I hired, like for $15,000 a day, I hired a guy to come in and talk about time management. And frankly, we had to have lessons on etiquette because these guys ate like wolves at, at lunch, you know, business lunches. You know, so all these basic life skills. And I thought to myself, Richard, I thought, this isn't that complicated it's, I don't know that it's worth $15,000 a day for these people to come in and teach us this stuff. And frankly, you don't have to be an executive on the top floor corner office to be privileged for this information. I want my kids to have this information. In fact, I want everybody's kids. I want everybody to have this information. Um, you know, I call it core IQ. It's this kind of basic stuff we should know that's not taught in school somehow and, uh, and make it available for free. So I have coreiq.com and people can come watch the videos and we you know, some people go to the YouTube stuff. I think more people come to the website, but um, but that's what I'm trying to do is just, hey, these are core skills we all need and it's for free. And to the extent anybody wants to have that information, um, uh, it's it's there. You know, I read an interesting quote from Frederick Douglass, and I just happened to see it on LinkedIn. Uh, just I think it was either this morning or last night. And let's see if I can remember it because I'm not able to uh, snag it here very quickly. That's the only downside to social media is when you find something, you either save it or you're going to scroll down forever. And basically the quote was, um, and again, I'm going to paraphrase here. It is easier to build, uh, to create and build a child 
than it is to fix a man or an adult. Uh, and I thought that was rather profound, and I've often thought about that in terms of some of the traumas that, again, that we, we in our society create, okay? And you, you alluded to abusive relationships and so forth. Um, I've, worked, I've worked in one um, hostile work environment, uh, and I had taken the position once I recognized where I was now working, I was not going to give the, uh, my supervisor the satisfaction of quitting. I refused to do that. Plus, in fact, I loved what I was doing. So I hid out in the production room most of the time, out of uh, sight, out of mind, hopefully. And, um, <clears throat> you know, they eventually laid me off with what most people in broadcasting, unless you have a contract, and I did not, do not get, and that is a severance package, a rather healthy severance package. Telling me they knew what they were doing was wrong. And it wasn't until about two years later when some of the guys that still worked there had broken into a file cabinet and found out that that radio station was basically designed as a tax write-off. They didn't want it to succeed. They wanted it to be unprofitable. And had I known that, I probably never would have done that. But they're not going to tell you that up front. <laughs> Who does no, that? Right. Um, right. So, and obviously, I still have, you know, some issues over that as far as this individual uh, and, 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 and the way that I was treated. And yet everybody else around me other than him, uh, they treated me just fine. We were, we made, I made great friends. When he hired me, I was like his best friend. And three or four weeks later, after I was in the position, he treated me as if I had just killed his best friend. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. But I've, then the next job after that was unbelievable. I mean, it was a turnaround like you would not. It was like I had entered my second family. I, it was like I was embraced with open arms. It was, it was, un, it was just like, wow. Do you find that... The people that come to you or or and again, I'm sure that you haven't really been able to get out and about in the last year, obviously, to promote the book in the way that you'd like. Holds maybe uh, lectures or seminars or this or that or the other over this particular topic. But before all of the uh, before the pandemic hit, I'm sure that you did. When you did, did you come across people who were telling a lot of the same kinds of stories and that the, the stories are all different. That's what makes us unique. But wake, what makes us similar, and this is what I've discovered, uh, uh, Doc, is that we all experience the same emotions. You and I experience sadness, might experience it differently, but we all ex we both experience it or happiness, uh, you know, or or grief or whatever the emotion is. We all have the same emotional list, right? Is, is that one of the ways that, uh, and again, I, is, it, is it too much of a platitude to say, look, you and I, we're the same. I get where you're coming from emotionally. I, I hear your story, different from mine, but I hear your story, but uh, you're not alone. Uh, is that, are those too much platitudes? Do those really, really do any good? Do they really help? Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you said because you're dealing with some people's trauma was a, an acute thing. It was a it was a 
blow in the, you know, you're popped in the face with some trauma that came unexpectedly. And some people's are chronic. It's just like one of the stories in the book is Jerry Jewell, who I just saw over the weekend with my wife. And uh, Jerry was, I went to high school with her, but she was uh, born disabled, but she's the first person in history to land a starring role in a TV show. Mm. Um, and uh, Facts of Life on ABC. And she, Jerry just starred in the Deadwood movie on HBO. Um, so she was born with her trauma. I was born with my trauma with my heart condition, mm -hmm. but other people, they're, they have uh, kind of idyllic lives and all of a sudden it's his. So what I'm getting at, Richard, is you got all this diverse diversity in our traumas, you know, including what you said and, and also the acute versus chronic and what, what it was, is it ongoing? You know, there's a lot of complexity and diversity, but, you know, we got to land on some program. I don't know that I like that word, but some, some process to heal from it. And in that regard, it's remarkably similar. For example, in chapter one, I, I introduced what I call the dynamic duo. There's, there's several components of healing from trauma. There's eight or nine main, main themes, but I introduced two of them right up front because I want people to start healing right up front. You know, even though we're talking about shock, one is what we call sitting in the fire where you talk about it mm -hmm. because the number one mistake people make with trauma is they bottle it inside. They create an internal war outside. They look fine, but inside they're raging. Uh, that's so you sit in the fire, you tell your story as painful as it is, maybe not publicly, but you find a good therapist, you find a, a trusted friend or you journal it, but you get it out. That, that's number one. Number two is uh, grounding because it, it, as simple as it sounds, you can call it Grounding, meditation, Lamaze, breathing exercises, I don't care what you call it, but deep breathing exercises are shown over and over again in proven literature out of Harvard Medical School to reset that brain chemistry we were talking about earlier. So, so while the trauma itself can be very complex and come from a million different ways, the path for healing is pretty well established. We get on those tracks and we do it. I've just seen it over and over. It just really works. Um, that's the best way to kind of explain that that big, interesting question. Oh, yeah, it's it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I want to remind our listeners: this is "Tell Me Your Story: New Paradigms for a New World." We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here Sundays at seven a.m. and seven p.m. Monday mornings at one a.m. Streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com, and we're also on Wednesdays at nine a.m. and we are streaming then as well. That is what I call our special edition of "Tell Me Your Story." I hope you'll listen to all of the the programs. Uh, as you listen to the stream at richarddugan.com. We're podcasting all of the programs at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, other locations that you folks are reposting us to, and thank you for doing that. We're on YouTube. Go to the Tell Me Your Story or Richard Dugan uh, channel. That's right. It's a channel. Look for the guy with the hat and uh, enjoy. We also will be linked to our guest's website. And in this case, if I am correct in looking at what I am looking at, uh, your website, uh, Dr. Randall Bell, is coreiq.com. And that is as far as, and, and of course, you can also find out about his, the book, which is Post Traumatic Thriving. We also encourage you, if you're, uh, you're really enjoying what we're bringing to you, the subjects, the conversation, if these kinds of things resonate with you and you'd like to be a part of what we're doing, 
in quite honestly changing the world, even if it is one person at a time, uh, two ears at a time, as it were, uh, and you'd like to support us financially, we would greatly appreciate that through PayPal and Patreon accounts, which I have linked on my homepage for you, for our security as well as yours. And we ask you, as I mentioned earlier in the program, to take that time to spend time going within during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Uh, Listen to that still small voice. To that end, let me ask you about the the importance or unimportance uh, of one's faith when working through post-trauma and uh, working towards thriving. How important or unimportant is that in the process? Yeah, well, I've devoted, I had to look at the chapter number, is I've divided a, devoted a whole chapter, <laughs> chapter 11, to that topic because it's, it's, uh, it's a big one. Um, and, uh, and chapter 11 is where we're talking about thriving. And there's literature, I think it's out of the uh, University of North Carolina, that shows that uh, you know, statistically, those who have faith, and I describe that very openly, even atheists, agnostics are all invited to that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether you believe in God or Muhammad or Jesus or Buddha or nature or humanity, I, it, it's all faith. And uh, and it's essential. I, I don't want to say, say it's essential, but yeah, statistically, you're much much more likely to heal from your trauma and and kind of um, thrive uh, when you have some devotion to a higher power, whatever you want to call that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the punchline of the chapter. But I try and uh, be respectful of all people's faith, because let's face it, that's a ticklish topic and it can get people, you know, it can be emotional. Some people have been in, um, in faith systems that have been somewhat abusive and mm-hmm. um, so, you know, it, it can, in and of itself, it can be a triggering concept or topic. But um, the way I approach it, I think, I hope, and the feedback I've gotten is I've been somewhat successful in making everyone, no matter what their faith is or is not, comfortable in that discussion and just realizing the benefits of, of having a faith in something bigger than ourselves. You know, it's interesting, uh, as we talk about this, my wife and I just watched a documentary, I think it was on HBO, and it was about a, 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 an event that spanned almost, over 20 years, and the documentary was entitled Heaven's Gate, mm. okay? And there was a lot I wasn't even aware of. I didn't know it started in 75, you know? Mm. And that people were coming and going, you know, uh, from that standpoint. It was very interesting how uh, people, they went through their own processes. And what I, the reason I bring it up is because I want to ask you about trauma that we experience over things that we have done or done to others. Mm -hmm. Isn't there trauma there also? Uh, if you want to use the term the abuser, that's fine. Uh, maybe you you remember misspeaking to someone. You really, you know, went off the deep end kind of thing. Uh, you know, maybe it was even maybe it was even on the road when you were driving or what have you. I mean, I think about I think about, for example, some of the people who were trying to fly during the pandemic 
and were adamant about not wearing a mask or they you know, had this problem or that. And you mm-hmm. see the video on YouTube of them just going berserk as they're being removed from the plane kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now they have that trauma in them and they're the ones that created it. It wasn't upon them. They created it. Is that is that another form that has to be dealt with in terms of taking responsibility? Yeah, there's a lot there. The, the on Heaven's Gate, I don't know if you knew this, Richard, but I worked on that case. I, I've been in the house. Wow. I uh, intimately got to know the owners. Uh, I saw how the cult lived, uh, and that really woke me up to, um, frankly, brainwashing techniques and. How did reasonably or actually very smart and, you know, I high IQ people get into that, uh, you know, bizarre position. And that's a fascinating conversation in and of itself on Heaven's Gate. And as I say, I got a front row seat to, uh, you know, and access to to the whole case. I worked on it for, I think, well, over a year. Um, And uh, if it was a while ago, but I was profiled in... um, people magazine and that picture's taken inside the heaven's gate house Mm. and people magazine but you know getting to um uh you know i'm having a senior moment the second part of your question was uh taking responsibility for the trauma we inflicted on others oh yeah yeah my thought there is today i'm a i do i I love doing volunteer work at the homeless shelter here i'm in here in Laguna beach at the moment um and uh, batter women shelters and uh, the local orange county jail nearby but i'm also a volunteer up at san quentin prison and it's a profound experience and i'll just say this the biggest miracle in life is is change somebody having a change of heart and up in san quentin it's a, a victor offender program it's called ipp the the group i'm involved with it's a secular program and um you see we worked with both sides, people that are incarcerated and people that have been victimized. And sometimes we even facilitate uh, bringing them together. It doesn't happen overnight. It could take a year or two or longer mm-hmm. to, to get both parties at that point. And, uh, and many times that's not even possible. So we use proxies. But seeing, um, let's focus on the, those who are incarcerated to answer your question, to see someone walk into to San Quentin, and I've been in the concrete courtyard when they come in, and there's the machoism, and there's the false, you know, uh, the false facades of innocence, and you know, there's a lot of anger there. Um, and to have these people come into the program, um, and ultimately, after about two years, uh, you know, finish the program as people that you would be happy to have as next door neighbors and friends, uh, a complete. 180 degree reversal and change of heart. Uh, that's very possible. In fact, I in post traumatic thriving, I learned a lot from the inmates. They're they're men of, and in this case, it's a men's prison. Uh, I learned from these men, and I packed a book full of wisdom. But I don't want to take credit. It came from inmates, mm-hmm. um, and I and and they share their you know uh, that wisdom with me, and I I um, you know process and put it in the book. Um, and there is there is a possibility to take responsibility. I've seen it. I saw a guy walk in the room once and he was still in that denial, you know, ugly state. And he walked out of the room because he finally came clean about what he had done wrong. And, um, and the change of heart that came over him was, was, 
I, I wouldn't be understating it. It was the biggest, one of the biggest spiritual experiences I've ever seen to see that mm. dynamic change as possible within human beings. I like the fact that you refer to it as a spiritual experience, because uh, that goes right to the core of an individual. Uh, and uh, I, I and that's one of the things that it, it troubles me a little bit about our our penal system, in that um, many people on the outside they just they can't wrap their head around the possibility, even the possibility that an individual can be uh, rehabilitated, if you will, or, or who can come to grips with and have remorse over and then work through all of that and come out the other side and say, you know what, I I'm going to be a better person. And they become a better person when they're finally released, if, if in fact they're released, if they're not in there for life. Uh, or even if they are in there for life, they, they become a different person and no. they treat the other inmates and the guards differently. Uh, I remember back in 1981 or 82, I interviewed a woman who wrote a book. I think her name was Georgilla Herleman was the author. She was also, I think, a reporter. And um, it would, the book was entitled The Hate Factory about a prison. And what took place and why I read it from cover to cover, I do not know because I can never unread that. <laughs> but it spoke of what you might call unspeakable. You can read about them, but don't speak about them. Unspeakable uh, atrocities on the part of the inmates. Uh, there was a riot that took place. And I mean, it was just horrific. And the treatment that the inmates received as well from the guards the, uh, from the inside. It was just it was unbelievable what I what what we talked about at that particular point in time, and yet here we are today, and we've got, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of individuals we have behind bars, both men and women, for whatever reason, and we're not going to go there, mm -hmm. but it it makes no sense not to believe, in my perspective, in my opinion, to not believe that they can change. Because if they cannot change, then why do we even have educational institutions? Isn't that the whole point of an educational institution for you to go through it? And you're going to be changed by the things that you learn. So why can't yeah. another human being learn to yeah. be a better human being? Recognizing that in the past, in the past, they were not a real good human being. Yeah, all true. The the program is just mind-bending because, frankly, you know, I'm a tall, white, straight guy from Orange County, and the miracle in, in my life is that I'm open to change. Mm -hmm. One of the notions I had in my head, and I don't think I'm alone, was that inmates are just, you know, I hate to use the word, but just trash, to be discarded, to be punished. And, and a lot of the prisons and jails uh, are very punishing. And, you know, the reality is, and it's a very strong reality, is that 95% of these people are going to be paroled, even murderers, even rapists. And the question for society is, do you want these people being released and paroled uh, with a heart full of hate? Because they are hate factories in a lot of cases. But smarter people, smarter institutions are waking up to the idea of restorative justice. And that's what I'm in, is to realize these are human beings. These, these people have this full range of emotions that you and I have. 
And these people, we want to, on a pragmatic level, we want them released uh, into society to not recommit crimes. Um, and the way to do that is through restorative justice, where we treat them like human beings. We listen to their stories. And the first time I ever meditate, I learned to meditate the first time sitting between two convicted murders in San Quentin prison. And it wasn't until later my, my cardiologist and all her degrees said, hey, you should be meditating. So there's wisdom that you learn in prison. And, um, and to get back on restorative justice, the thinking now is that, hey, uh, we should listen to these people. We should listen to the victim's story. And we should, to the extent possible, even let them reconcile. But one of the most powerful things I ever heard in my life, Richard, was I was in prison. A guy came up to me. He was a convicted murderer. And he said, you don't know how much it means that you're just here. And I said, I, what do you mean? I'm not doing it. I'm just leaning against the wall. He says, no, you're a volunteer. You're not being paid. You're not being paid to be here. You're here. And it makes me feel like I'm a little bit more human. And I, I that really hit me because I didn't realize he, he felt that way. And he says, you know, I've been through this program and I'm going to tell you something. He said, I may be in prison for the rest of my life. I likely will be, but it's going to be a good, honorable life. And I thought, that's a miracle to have that change of heart where, where somebody wants to live a good, honorable life, even in prison, in spite of the serious mistakes he made. If you listen to that gentleman's backstory of what the abuse he went through and the trauma he went through as a child, had I gone through that, I'd be in prison. So it opens our minds to being less, far less judgmental and, and being far more productive in really dealing what's going on instead of holding on to these old stereotypes and myths that, that have brought society a, a lot of problems. Yeah. Well, they're human beings, too. And uh, regardless of uh, the quote-unquote mistakes that they have made, um, even if they were consciously carried out, it just shows what choices they thought they had. And what this program is all about is giving people choices and knowledge of those choices. Choices they may have heard of before, some they may never have heard of before, but possibilities to go a different direction. I use the analogy of one who has been taught from an early age uh, to travel from uh, their village uh, to the next village to maybe, I don't know, get their groceries, let's just say. But where they live, there's this dense fog that exists. So all they can do is look down and it just so happens that the road they're on has a white line on it. So you can follow the white line and it'll take you to the next village. And one day you're walking along that road and guess what happens? The fog mysteriously lifts and all of a sudden you notice there's a fork in the road. Do I take that? It's unknown. I have no clue as to what I'm going to find down that way. But I know what I'll get if I keep going this way. And it's kind of like what I said about uh, the pandemic and shutting down the country. We did something different. We took the fork. Now, we may or may not like how we uh, wind up coming out the other side or, you know, what have you. But it's going to be different. I guarantee you because we did something different. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the process, too, of getting people to understand that you, you, have to, uh, you, you, you have to start doing something different in order to get a different result, i.e. Einstein's definition of insanity? I love that you asked that question because there's one part in the book where I repeat myself, and I'm paraphrasing my own uh, 
writing, but it's to basically say, if you want a different result, you're going to have to do things differently. <laughs> and I repeat the line twice. I write it better than I speak it. Uh, but uh, chapter eight in post-traumatic thriving is on right on point with, with your comments. And that's uh, a chapter on experimentation um, because we're going to have to try new things. And it's really kind of a fun part of, of trauma recovery and, and post-traumatic thriving is to look at all these various options. And I do my best to lay out a big variety of them in the book. But to, to it, the basic idea with, with trauma recovery is to take self-medication for, you know, the drugs and the alcohol and the anger addiction and the workaholism and all the, you know, self-medication where we're bearing our trauma and switch over to a life of self-care where we're, you know, uh, you know, going down to the beach or going down to the river or spending more time with our kids or throwing the football or our hobbies, whatever they are, there's a long list. And that's, that's where we want to really kind of switch off the unhealthy stuff uh, that might, you know, help us mask the pain for a while, switch on the, the self-care, being good to ourselves, being good to the people around us. And, um, and that's, a really fun part of the whole process is to go through that exploration. Now, it might be the story you just told us about the inmate who came clean and had what you referred to as a spiritual experience there. But what has been, and if that is it, fine, the most profound experience that you have had working with people in these processes? Oh, there's so many. It's hard to pick one. I mean, okay. um, walking walking in the door at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, where numerous uh, gay men were murdered, uh, and seeing the bullet holes in the and the and the blood, it was just life changing. Walking out the door, uh, being an advocate for our LGBT friends, uh, rather than being ambivalent about it or ignorant about it. As I walked in the door, I walked out the door with a completely different mindset walking into San Quentin prison for the first time and seeing these principles in, in action and being so fascinated by it that I hit the books for years to, uh, to really understand it. Um, walking in the door of Heaven's Gate Mansion where the stench, they just, I, I have no morbid, morbid curiosity. I, I wanted all the bodies out before I went in and they had just finished it the day before, but walking in and understanding how cults operate and uh, walking out the door with a heightened awareness that, you know, this is a problem because a lot of people are into these brain traps where they do ridiculous things because they're conditioned by the institutions that they join. Um, there's so many profound experiences. Sitting down at the kitchen table with, with uh, Nicole Brown Simpson's family, with the whole O.J. Simpson trial. I was working on that case right in the middle of it. And I, I kind of woke up at a moment in the conversation, realized, you know, there's chairs around the table. I, I'm sitting in Nicole's chair and, and, and seeing um, the energy that the family had to take their grief and put it into something positive and, and address this ugly issue of domestic violence, which up until that point in history hadn't really been properly addressed. I'm not saying it's, we, we've, uh, we've, you know, finish that cause, but, but that's really woke people up. And I've seen many, you know, uh, many women come up to Denise Brown or Tanya Brown and thank them profusely for the education that got them out of ugly relationships. All of these experiences are pretty profound. I, you know, I talk about them in the book because I'm trying to convey 
that change is really possible. And like you were saying earlier, we're, we, we're going to change the world. And if we don't do that, we're going to at least change our world. So that's that's the philosophy I have. I went through a series of four steps back um, following 2016, where I got sucked into the political process. And it took me six months to uh, get unsucked. <laughs> and then I went through four steps. I went through four steps I've shared many times on this program. And the first one was probably the most difficult to utter out loud. And I had to say it out loud. I didn't even want to think it. Thank you, teacher, for teaching me how not to behave. And I used to say to my, I remember talking with my mother during that period of time, that um, I would have the reddest cheeks in the world if I spoke to my mother the way that particular teacher spoke. The second phase was, I forgive you, but more importantly, I forgive myself. I want to talk about forgiveness uh, as well in terms of this process of post-traumatic thriving. The third phase, we'll go back to uh, uh, forgiveness in a moment, but the third phase was, uh, what is it that you are so afraid of that makes you behave this way? I'm not asking you to change. God forbid you should change. I want to know for myself so that I can process this and move on with my life. And the fourth phase was given to me by one of my guests on this program. Four, I'm sorry, three simple words. And you have to mean it. I love you. You are a human being. You have every right to be here just like me and everybody else. You're playing your role, as Shakespeare has said, you know, all the world's a stage. Uh, and uh, I, I love you as a fellow human being. So um, those are the four phases that I went through. And I share that regularly because... Again, it is that first one that, oh, my God, it's stuck in my craw, as it were, as the phrase goes, for so long. And it's like, oh, no, I can't. I can't acknowledge that he's a teacher. No, I can't do. I, I have to because we're both teacher and student to each other, whether it's you and me, whether it's someone here in the room or across the country. It doesn't matter. So let's go back to forgiveness. What's the role of not only other forgiveness, but self-forgiveness. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love these interviews because I keep, I'm taking notes <laughs> because, because there's a lot of wisdom in what you just shared, Richard. Um, and first with uh, the fourth point, uh, I love you, the way I, I, I have the same uh, value system, I should say. And one of the things I'm a, I'm a believer uh, and I, one of my uh, one of my pastors once said, "God never created a person he doesn't love," and I think about that all the time because I uh, grew up somewhat judgmental, and now when I see someone that before I pass judgment, I say I remind myself of that phrase, and um, and it changes it just changes my whole you know outlook from that that point on. Um, on forgiveness, you know, the first thing is the lie that we you know, tell ourselves, I mentioned at the start is to forgive and forget. We're not going to, we're not going to forget, but forgiveness is more in, in scientific terms. We want 
when we're traumatized, it rewires the brain, and that's a big discussion. But then we get these triggers where we see our elementary school where we were bullied, bullied just driving by it can trigger us, or somebody says something uh, that re you know re-triggers us, or we hear a song where you know it reminds us of the girlfriend that dumped us. You know, we get these triggered. The idea with forgiveness is not to forget and shut down these memories because that's not going to happen. Um, we're going to be remember. We're going to remember the bully and the girlfriend and all, we're going to remember all our traumas. Mm -hmm. The idea is to go through these exercises, which I've you know already shared the first two big ones is telling our story and um, and the deep breathing exercises so that when we're re-triggered, there's uh, you can use the word forgiveness, but we're not we're not charged. We're not we don't have that flash of emotion from our adrenaline glands that where we lose control or we get really upset or really depressed. The in other words, the memory goes through our minds of whatever that incident was, and it goes through it goes through our minds harmlessly, meaning we're not re-triggered. It's like yeah, that happened, and there we are. And you, my own example with uh, cardiology. Uh, I had this open heart surgery, you know, just uh, in recent years, I have a new cardiologist, I stood on her uh, treadmill. And I was I had a, a heartbeat of uh, 150. And she hadn't even turned the treadmill on. I was being <laughs> triggered because wow. my original cardiologist was female, my my current cardiologist is a woman, and all those memories that I had repressed manifested in this high blood pressure, high heart rate. And I, I talked to her about it. She's a very holistic, wonderful uh, person of wisdom. And she understood where I was coming from. And she says, come into my office and stand on the treadmill whenever you want. And let's process this trauma. And now I'm not re-triggered by, by any of this. Because A, I'm telling my story. I'm telling it right now. And number two, um, I, the deep breathing exercises, those alone trigger, you know, uh, healed me from that particular trauma. So that's how these principles kind of come alive. It's interesting stuff. Post-traumatic thriving. As I said before at the front end of the program, we want to move from survival to thrival. you got to survive the trauma in order to move into the thriving department, if you will, which is on the third floor uh, next to housewares and lingerie. But, uh, <laughs> we, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting how I was having this conversation with somebody just the other day, and we were talking about uh, the um, inalienable rights is referred to in the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, life and liberty. Now, life, that's, a, that's pretty well defined. We know what that is. You and I, we're alive, so we have life, right? It's sure. an inalienable right, I guess, God-given, if you will, uh, or higher power given, however you want to phrase it. Liberty, sure. a little more tenuous. You, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of subject to interpretation. It's a little subjective. And happiness. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. It's pursuit of happiness. And we came to the conclusion of sorts that that was something that is not attainable because it's unrealistic, which I thought was rather interesting uh, from my guest's perspective, in that we, we, we broke it down to say, well, maybe it was uh, designed to keep us occupied while they... The, and this would be more along the lines of a conspiracy theory, which I don't necessarily buy into, uh, keeps us occupied while they, the powers that be, are doing whatever it is that the powers that be do, you know. And um, 
again, happiness is also subjective. Uh, I, I, I don't know what the neutral, Im, if it is an emotion, would be, but there is no one thing that makes all of us happy. Now, one thing that I suppose would make me feel better is if we were all getting along a hell of a lot better than we are now in terms of our ability to communicate one with another, regardless of, let's say, our religious, our political, our economic differences. And there are a lot of them. Um, it, 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 I'm just curious from your perspective as you go in, how have you always had a, um, shall we say, an open mind and heart when it came to dealing with people, even before you did this 10 years of research that has produced the pro, the, the post-traumatic thriving uh, work that we are not talking about today? Or was that something that you had to develop over time? Have you always been, shall we say, empathetic? Uh, the, the honest answer is no. I grew up selfish. I grew up, uh, you know, kind of a pig, kind of, um, you know, conquesting, getting the college degrees and just, you know, money and business and all that. And I, I give myself a little more credit. I was more of a mixed bag. I mean, sometimes I was empathetic and sometimes I was a jerk. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and I don't know, I can't really identify a specific time where I really kind of woke up to being empathetic. I think it was, I think it might've been the OJ case because when I was sitting at that kitchen table, that was a profound turning point to, you know, having empathy for w women that went through a domestic violence that I grew up in a peaceful home that never happened, but I woke up and realized that even in, in luxury society, this is, this is a problem. And maybe what I'm doing is more important than just crunching numbers as an economist Maybe I should pay a little more attention to the people behind the statistics. And that, that was a turning point. But I've had a number of turning points um, where I've had to kind of face, face my um, deficits and kind of grow up. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, so it's, it's been a number of years, but it's is, it is more of a gradual thing. I think today I try to be, you know, uh, empathetic. I try and listen. I think it's really essential that everybody not only tell their story, but they have somebody to tell their story to. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I have um, a high threshold for trauma. I can listen to these horrible stories in prison and not scream and run out of the room, but not everybody can do that. But in the science of happiness, the research came out of University of Riverside, I think, but 50% of our level of happiness is DNA. I happen to have good DNA. My mom said I was born smiling. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. Very good. But, yeah. 40% of our happiness is activities that we choose, and 10% of our happiness is the stuff that happens to us. So trauma only accounts for 10% of our, our happiness. And if it takes us down, that's really 10%. 40%, four times more, depends on the activities we choose. So that's what this book is about, is saying, okay, the stuff happened, the 10% happened, and it's bad. But let's choose activity. I can't do much about your DNA or my DNA. It is what it is. But we can choose that 40% of activities in terms of self-care and education on these principles that we're uh, sharing with each other, and that will bring healing. So that's, that's kind of how I see stuff. Dr. Randall Bell's my guest. This is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and we are talking about his latest work, Post-Traumatic Thriving. 
Now, that sounds almost like an oxymoron of sorts. It really does. Uh, was that something that uh, just kind of came to you? Or, or did you have to think about the title for this work uh, in that respect? Because, like I said, that it's like, really? I, I can't see anybody um, thriving after trauma. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the title came to me several years ago, and I felt very compelled. The minute I had that thought, if you will, um, or revelation, whatever you want to call it, um, I felt very compelled to really dig in on that. I, it's been a passion. And um, that's where the title came from. But then it was a realization that while the title and the principle was fascinating, I had a lot of work to do in terms of research and then also the stuff really works because there's stories i mentioned jerry jewell there's also leo fender he lived two streets from me he invented the electric guitar and he had a glass eye he had was deaf and um and he built a billion dollar industry so he had these disabilities and it didn't let him stop him there's example after example of people that have really been punched in the face with a hard trauma as he was and many others that really got back on their feet and and did something phenomenal because they tapped into that energy. Trauma creates a lot of energy. And if it can be wasted energy or it can be useful energy, we tap into it properly. We can do something bigger and better and cooler than we ever would have imagined pre-trauma. That's really the big message of the book is that's a complete possibility. In fact, it's more than a, it's a reality for many people and hopefully many more as a result of learning the, the concepts. Well, of course, your book is available on Amazon through your website, coreiq.com, coreiq.com. Uh, Dr. Uh, Randall Bell is my guest, Ph.D. Uh, you said in sociology, one of the things that I found so fascinating when I was working for the Christian Station for 15 years, back in the early 80s, 80s and 90s, uh, during the 80s and early 90s, uh, during the heyday of televangelism, what a... <laughs> What a wild time that was. I often tell people, yeah, I, I learned a lot about sociology, psychology, comparative sects or religions, um, political science, uh, and many other uh, ologies, if you will. I did learn a little broadcasting during that time, too. But it was one of the greatest educations that I was ever paid for uh, because it showed me people uh, when they were being real. And there were some people who showed me that they were real, and it shocked me. It surprised me in terms of their belief in a particular doctrine or dogma, and yet their level of compassion for fellow human beings, regardless of what that fellow human being believed. I was pouring rain one night as I was closing up the station, and one of the programmers showed up in his SUV says, can I give you a ride home? And this guy had challenged me on whether or not I was saved and because he didn't think I was. Because I was asking all kinds of questions that you just don't ask. I was asking those questions that would get me a big H on my forehead for heretic. Hmm. And yet there he was to give me a ride home, uh, you know, without so I wouldn't get soaking wet, which, of course, didn't you know. bother me. But, uh, you know, it's like. Wow, okay, so this guy does actually have a heart. <laughs> <laughs>
That's good. <laughs> it's 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 nice to see, and and people will surprise you, folks. That's one of the reasons I don't know about you, but I I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I've been I've been lied to before. I've been told, oh, we're going to do this and that and the other thing. Here, go ahead and resign from your post over at this station, and because I'm going to hire you over here. And I was on my way to the station to deliver uh, my resignation letter, and I went stopped by the uh, uh, the place where this guy was going to be working. And the place was empty. And hmm. it's like, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't go to the station first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit before we wrap things up here about our inner life, our intuition, uh, listening to that still small voice? Where's the encouragement uh, that you give people in that? And how important do you see that for each individual going through the work that you talk about here? Yeah, there's so much good stuff you just shared. I, on the on the religion side, I'm I'm kind of uh, a very, I would call myself a non-institutionalized Christian. Um, <laughs> I like I, that. I, I, I see like a it. lot of problems with the with the institutions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like just the simple beatitudes. I like the Sermon on the Mount. I like um, you know just the simple teachings of the New Testament. And I, once you start layering it on, um, I'm, I lose interest. I'm interested in the core of that, which was a message of love and, and acceptance and empathy. I'm all for it. You know, when trauma hits, it's interesting that our best friends uh, can scatter and people we barely know can come and um, really, you know, share in the grief with us. It's a very awakening experience in and of itself. And um and having a life of empathy, I mean, that's what Jesus was all about. It was reaching out to marginalized people in society. And when I got the invitation to go into prison, quite frankly, it was uh, the phrases from the New Testament that said, that's an opportunity I should take. I neglected to ever do that, even though it's taught, and I'm going to do it. And it turned out to be one of the most insightful, powerful decisions I ever made. Uh, because, frankly, prior to that, I had zero interest in the thought never even occurred to me to go inside a prison. So... Um, that's what it's all about. Reaching out to people that are different than ourselves, uh, being empathetic with this fact that people are in different positions in life. God never created a person he didn't love. And, and that means I, I should be loving too, as you were sharing earlier, um, same message. And, um, that's kind of my philosophy. Um, it's simple. And anytime anybody thinks that they have a job to intervene between me and a higher power, I'm not so interested uh, because one of my favorite s- scriptures comes out of Luke's where Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. It's mm-hmm. not out there. It's within you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I think about things. My uh, one of my people that I quote quite often, or at least I refer to uh, John Noe wrote a book called The Apocalypse Conspiracy, where uh, he felt that Christendom was being taken down a primrose path. You know, they'd been lied to for centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did a research, and he was a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. Uh-huh. And his book basically summed it up quite clearly, and uh, you probably summed it up by that passage as well as he did in the, I don't know, 150 pages of his book uh, of research that he did. That Christianity, I phrased it this way and got into a lot of trouble until I explained it, Christianity is a metaphysical philosophy. It is not a material philosophy. It is, and, of course, they say, well, oh, no, that's new age. No, no, no. Do you know what the definition of uh, metaphysical is? No. 
It's beyond the physical, which is what Jesus and all of the books of the Bible are talking about. There's certain I, I have never figured out how the Song of Solomon got in there, uh, but it is in there. That's wonderful. I'm glad. Uh, but uh, it's all about the internal life, our inner life. And, um, and, and again, yeah, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is within us, uh, you know, and in manner of speaking, if it's within us, then we reside in it. We're already Mm -hmm. there. We're already there. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, one final question before we wrap up here, and that is the, uh, coreiq.com. Tell us what is the IQ test? What is the core IQ test and what is it uh, designed to reveal about self? Well, the core IQ test is, uh, wraps around a book I wrote called Me, We, Do, Be. Me is our mindset. So the first questions are about what are our attitudes. Um, we talked about faith. What's our level of uh, faith, Whatever, however that's described. But it's the, the me mindset. And then the we is how we get along with other people. It's our social interactions. And then do is productivity in terms of time management, getting our jobs done, task lists, you know, that kind of thing. And then B is what we're becoming. What are our goals? What's what's the legacy we hope to leave behind? And it's basically asking questions in those uh, for me, we do be categories and seeing where we really are. Uh, we don't keep the results here. We never see them. And uh, uh, but it's an assessment to say, hey, maybe I need to take a course on uh, negotiation skills or maybe I should take the, you know, watch the video on, you know, there's there's dozens of videos there. Uh, but it kind of identifies our strong areas and our areas we might want to step it up on a little bit. I think it'd be a fun thing. I took it. I took it. And uh, it was fascinating because, as I said at the front end of the program, uh, interesting questions, but it also challenges your level of honesty. I've always had trouble, for example, journaling because I'm I'm thinking while I'm writing do I want someone else to read this? Am I sure I want to say that in here? It's like, wait a minute. The journal, is you should view it as if no one can ever get into it. And as long as it's done on paper with pen or pencil, nobody can hack it. <laughs> 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 nobody yeah. can hack it. Um, right. so, so there you go. Um, Dr. Randall Bell, I want to thank you for giving us so much time on this program. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can have you back again. Uh, because I do believe we did have you on once before talking about me, we do be. Uh, I think that we did talk with you once before, yeah. and I hope to have you back again. I know you have a third book as well. Am I not correct? I have uh, a book on Leo Fender. I wrote with uh, Mrs. Leo Fender with Leo's wife. Uh, I have a textbook, which I don't recommend because it's what freeze over our brain. <laughs> um, but yeah, I like I like to write stuff, and I'm working on a new book. Um I'll uh, hopefully be able to come back and share that with you, too. I, I know you, I, I'm pretty sure you'd find it fascinating. But, yeah, right now it's post-traumatic thriving, and um, it's it's fun to – I'm a weird guy. I like to sit down and write stuff, and, and there we go. <laughs> well, we thank you for giving us the time here on the program all the way from uh, your locale – uh, still here in California, which is great. And, yeah. uh, again, we do look forward to having you back. And, again, the core 
iq.com, the website. We will be linked to that website as well. I do have three final questions I'd like to ask all my guests. You may have addressed them during the program, but I'd like to ask them directly. Before I do, I want to remind you, the listener and the viewer, that you can uh, listen to these programs at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on a Sunday, 1 a.m. Monday morning, 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning. That is our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And we're streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com with podcasts at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations, along with YouTube, where you can watch the interviews. I hope you'll subscribe. I'm up to 24. I, I am thrilled that I have 24 subscribers. It's great. I know other people are watching. They just have chosen not to subscribe at this time. But, hey, that'd be great if you did. And also, if you'd like to support what we're doing financially, we would greatly appreciate that as well. At a, a PayPal and Patreon account, we have links on the homepage for your security as well as ours. And we also ask you to participate in the Decade of perfect vision the 2020s go within listen to that still small voice and find that calm quiet peaceful place where you can relax and rejuvenate and yes there will come times when it'll get a little dark but that's part of who we are too it's that's all the makeup of who and what we are and that's what's made you who you are today uh, the question is who do you want to be tomorrow and I'm hoping that through your book, uh, Dr. Rebel, uh, people will be able to get to that place where they can start to make that kind of a decision and choice as to who they want to be tomorrow. With all of that said, let me point these questions to you now, three of which, number one, who is Randall Bell? Well, Randall Bell is just a guy from an obscure town in Southern California who uh, is trying to figure out everything like everyone else. I'm no better, uh, no worse than anyone else. Uh, but I I think if you're going to pick one word to describe me, it would be adventure. I, I like the adventure of learning, meeting new people, listening to new ideas. Uh, I just like adventure. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I hope, uh, and uh, I hope to find people on the margins who have been through trauma, who haven't been able to process it or deal with it in a healthy, successful way. I hope to just reach a few people that are in that position and, um, and share some things I learned. I don't take credit for the wisdom. I don't take credit for the academic studies. I don't take you know credit for the stories that people have shared with me, but I have assembled it to hopefully give people a roadmap to make life a little bit better. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Ah, boy, that's a, that's a big one. I think uh, ultimately I want to, um, I, I follow the teachings and examples of, of Christ, um, and, and that means love my neighbor, whoever my neighbor is. I think I show respect to God by doing that, and uh, particularly reach out to people who are, feel marginalized and um, keep my eye on them and buy maybe a sandwich for a guy uh, you know, sitting on the sidewalk at the convenience store. Just do whatever I can wherever I go to make things a little bit better for others. It's all about service. Absolutely. Dr. Randall Bell, I thank you once again for joining us here on the program. I encourage folks to go to your website, coreiq.com. Get a copy of the book, Post Traumatic Thriving. And uh, we, uh, again, do look forward to having you back again here on the program. And to those of you listening and watching, tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World. 
we ask you to join us for our next broadcast, podcast, videocast. And until then, love to lull.